Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to the new edition of TLS Voices. My name is Stig Abel, editor of the Times Literary Supplement. I'm joined as ever by commissioning editor, eater of cheese and brain, but never together... Thea Lenaduzzi. Never, never together. Never together. Never together. Separately. Mm. Fine. <laughs> yeah, I think you you have said to me you did genuinely eat brain and enjoyed once, it. Once. once. It was fine. I mean, it was, you know, anything that's breaded and deep fried it's gonna work you can deep fry anything (laughs) coming up on the show this week we have a religion special in the tls as we approach that appropriated roman carnival of excess we call christmas religion editor and indeed religious editor rupert short has written the lead essay with this thesis we live in a post secular world in which many modern benefits are based on Christianity. Our fiction editor Toby Lichtig has interviewed Emily Witt, the American author of the faintly terrifying Future Sex. We will hear from them both. And finally, Terry Apter will join us to discuss whether art and science can ever a marriage make. So... As our minds turn to the embellished tale of a wandering star, child in a manger and so on, it's profitable perhaps to consider the state of Christianity in the world and also the state of the world thanks to Christianity. Rupert Short has reviewed two books in this area, The Evolution of the West by Nick Spencer and Skeptical Christianity by Robert Rice. Rupert's essay makes a number of striking points, striking at least to a humdrum sceptical atheist like me, including the fact that we are living in a post-secular age in which religion Religious thought is on the rise. Social progress and the increased moral civilization of the world is due to Christianity, not in spite of it. And the Enlightenment and its intendant intellectual revolution was powered by religious thinkers, mixed in a godly crucible, as Rupert puts it. He joins Thea and me now in the studio. Rupert, let's start with the first premise and then we'll move along. How religious an age are we in? Because there is a, you might intuitively think, as the world has got progressively more modern, more rational, religion has declined. And we feel that Britain, in Britain, religion may have declined in sort of public discourse. Are we living in a more or less religious age? Yeah, well, you you might be if you made certain lazy assumptions, but I think you would be right up to a point. I think we live in a post-religious as well as a post-secular age. Uh, It's not um, one or the other. One of my correspondents contacted me this morning to say that she'd just been to a nativity play titled Lights, Camera, Action, all modelled on Strictly Come Dancing. She came away... (laughs) 
<laughs> realising that the, the kids didn't really have a clue about what the purpose of the play was. And no. I went to my son's nativity play and I was slightly taken aback when Jesus appeared and the songs had Jesus in. Because I kind of was I'm conditioned... The, in, in modern Britain, the nativity has nothing to do with the birth of Jesus. We, we can be embarrassed. Religion, Christianity in particular, can be embarrassed out of existence. But if you look at the world as a whole, I would say that thanks precisely to democratisation and globalisation, the world is becoming a more religious place. It was actually secular authoritarians in all sorts of societies, Algeria, Turkey, Egypt, India, and elsewhere, who tried to banish religion from the public square and it was as those societies became more democratic that religion came to rear its head again sometimes in not altogether positive ways do you think it's it's a reaction to kind of the the uber individualistic society in which we live a sort of photographic negative of of an existential crisis in which we're you know wrapped up in understanding what we are and then we now instead we're sort of wondering what is beyond us yes and religion is a, a badge of identity there are pretty this worldly aspects to it as well as otherworldly ones the thesis that i mentioned before progress in the modern world legally socially ethically is related to christianity i was very taken with uh, as an argument because again it's easy to separate ethics and culture from a religious story that's 2,000 years old, but you kind of make the case that a lot of what we value in modernity, a lot of the signs of progress in modernity, civilization, is due to Christianity rather than being done separately to it. Yes, absolutely. Uh, this is rather a long piece, and uh, I've uh, had to rein myself in a, a little bit. But in an, <laughs> in an earlier draft, I, I quoted a, um, a 20th century French philosopher Jacques Maritain and he described his conception of society as personalist because society is composed of persons communal because persons tend to society and pluralist because the development of the human person requires a plurality of autonomous communities but the point is that his vision was deeply Christian he was a Catholic philosopher and I think that too many secularists assume these truths if such they be to be self-evident to, to neutral reason. They're not. They emerge from a Christian matrix. But they, did they emerge from a Christian matrix because the world was Christian? And it seems to me, I wonder if you're claiming a false credit here, because if you go back 300 years to just before the Enlightenment or any real point before that, of course the thinkers were religious because everyone was religious because religion was effectively imposed on the masses from the cradle. So inevitably you can claim credit for that sort of 300 years enlightenment and, 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 and before and after because everyone was Christian. But I think that there's a misconception in um, talking about religion in general. I mean, if, if one um, religion turns out to be true, then by definition other religions are going to be less than true, to, to put it mildly. I'm not arguing in favour of religion as such. I'm talking about Christianity in particular, and it was in Christian societies that the Enlightenment emerged. Now, we're talking about a long and complicated genealogy here, but if you go back a couple of thousand years, there was absolutely no sense in most religions that there was an ethical dimension. The, the weak went to the wall. The poor, the handicapped were shunned. Christian attitudes, the taking forward of Jewish ideas, the radicalisation, if you like, the extension to, to the um, global dimension of 
the principle that since everybody is made in the image of God, everyone is of infinite value. That's really revolutionary. I mean, the word revolutionary is is overused, and I, I would say that that was one of the absolutely critical steps forward in human civilization. If you trace back the history of philanthropy, uh, the reaching out to the outsider. Yeah, that's fascinating one, that the basic principles, the morals of Christianity have then led to real-world morals as well. But the, I suppose the counter-history, if you look back particularly to the 16th century, the wars of religion in France, you, you, it is a history of blood-soaked close-mindedness, people who are dying for, over a debate about whether or not Jesus is manifested in the host or not. You know, theological uh, quibbles led to people being dismembered. And that's not a fantasy, that is a well-documented and very widespread fact. And so how, how do you balance those two things that Christianity, or is this just the, the world's complicated, Christianity brought a lot of good, but it's, it, it'd be a mistake to not recognise and try and calculate the amount of ill that it brought as well? Sure, it's a little bit unfair to single out religion. The nation-state is responsible for colossal levels of violence. Levels of violence in the early modern age and at other times have risen in proportion to the growing claims of, of the state. We don't thereby say that the nation-state or that patriotism are bad in themselves. I mean, well, religion, a lot of people do say that about patriotism. The, the, they, they, they say it is effectively out of control and it's not something that can be harnessed. Yes, or at least that it can, be, it can be a good thing and it can be put to corrupt use. I mean, religion is a system of kinship bonding. You also say, though, that though corrupted later in its history, the church displayed radically egalitarian impulses from the start, and that's something that we've just been talking about. But I wonder, I wonder whether you think, to talk about the the perceived rise in religion in religion do you think that 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 we're moving back towards religion being an egalitarian thing and that that accounts for the rise people are drawn to that or do you think that it's precisely the more conservative aspects of religion that are appealing to people i think it's both what, what i was about to add a, a moment ago is that it's no part of christian teaching to say that human beings are good and will always tend to the good. The church is not meant to be a hotel for saints, it's a hospital for, for sinners. And the, the definition of a Christian is not a, a good person, it's somebody who acknowledges their, their failure to be good. These days I think that Islam, conservative Islam uh, in particular, is very much connected with identity, people who feel rootless in the contemporary world and want to, to reassert their identity. I mean, you can see that on the streets of London with teenage girls wearing the hijab, um, daughters and granddaughters of women who, who don't wear it. As far as Christianity is concerned, one of the things I'd like to say is that the, the church has become more tolerant and self-critical since the Second World War. In uh, this country is this? In, no, I'm thinking of the world as a whole, actually. Really? Certainly in, in, in Europe, as um, a consequence of Christian guilt over church collusion in the Holocaust. How come the church then seems to veer more conservative in America? Um, it does in Africa. And so think, even in this country, this basic premise that the church should bless same-sex marriages, the church should allow people who are clearly 
And this seems to be not even a matter of dispute. People are born gay. It's a simple manifestation of their lives. It is utterly uncontroversial. It is utterly, utterly harmless. And yet the church is effectively saying, we will not welcome people who show love to someone in the same sex. That seems to me to go against exactly that notion of, a, of an increasing tolerance. Or are you saying that we're maybe 20 years away from that being the next manifestation? of? Intolerance? I would say that we need to unpack what you just said a little bit. It's not Part of my argument to say that Christianity should be automatically identified with liberalism. I think on the one hand, if even the Pope says that a Christian who isn't a revolutionary isn't a real Christian, we are pointed towards the, the way that uh, a real Christianity will be concerned with pulling down the mighty and raising up the humble on the one hand. But that that isn't to say that a Christian should automatically be liberal. For example, a Christian might have very well-justified uh, doubts about moral and cultural relativism, as do I. I can say that while believing wholeheartedly in, in gay marriage. But, but I, I think a, a Christian cannot preach love and tolerance. You're right, it doesn't mean you have to be a liberal to be a Christian, but if you believe in love and tolerance in that sense and a God-loving people and welcoming the love that people can show to others. It seems to me, beyond hypocritical, the Pope should be the first person who stands up and says, I absolutely endorse same-sex marriage because I believe in the beneficial power of love. That's the whole reason I'm in this game. It's the whole reason this game exists. That's not about being liberal in, in some areas. That's a fundamental tenet of a religion that is supposed to celebrate love. Yes, I think that there are aspects of contemporary society which the hedonistic aspect, which the Christian is likely to feel ambivalent towards, to put it mildly, I would argue that it's precisely through the application of Christian principles that gay marriage can be accepted. So uh, to a degree, are we sort of trapped in this relationship where the, the church, whichever church, um, the Catholic church or the, or the Church of England, whatever, has to reflect where its congregation is? rather than lead its congregation to somewhere that they're not yet comfortable with. The, the difficulties with a, a revealed religion like Christianity is that it, it, it believes that it is teaching um, transcendently given and permanently binding norms of behaviour. And when we're talking about an area like sex, I would say, well, the, the absolutely critical principle there is the connection between sex and love rather than uh, promiscuity. The difficulty comes where the social situations change. I mean, in, in the 19th century, there were enormous battles over eternal hellfire about whether the, the Bible was to be taken literally. And in the late 20th and 21st centuries, where the shoe pinches is over the, the question of uh, sexuality. That, to me, is just a how tricky things can be in general when you're trying to refresh a sacred text uh, uh, for one generation after another. I think that's very fair. Uh, we should move on, 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 on from this. I want to ask one, one final question for you. But I, I just can't quite accept that argument in that we are talking about an essential pillar of the religion, as I understand it, and I could be wrong about this, but it's the primacy of love. You say that it's not about sex, about love. This is about two people who want to give their lives to one another. It doesn't matter, does it, therefore, 
their gender. And so the, the, what Thea's talking about, the sort of social mores of people in the Deep South or people in Italy or people in Africa, shouldn't matter because they're, they're hypocr- they are gross hypocrites, are they not? In real or obvious terms by saying, we believe in this religion and these tenets, but we will not allow that to be applied to people who are of the same sex. Yeah, I mean, the, the Conservatives would say love the sinner hate the sin as i say i i i feel that my argument is a bit more radical in questioning whether a so-called sin is a sin let me give you an analogy in terms of divorce stig um there is a a liberal point of view that would say look if a marriage breaks down and two people get divorced and then they both fall in love with other people and they're christians why shouldn't they be allowed to remarry in church now, yeah, they, they can, can't they? Or can they not? Well, that has been an issue of, I mean, a generation ago, you see the answer would have been no in the Church of England, which had a, a stronger discipline yeah. on remarriage after divorce, even than the Catholic Church, because of the, the Catholic Church believes that it, it has the power to annul marriages. The, the, the question of, I mean, b- both sides can quote different parts of the New Testament in in support of their their argument, trying to um, refract the light of divine revelation isn't always a, a, a simple no. business in the church. That's interesting. Uh, just for fun, we've got to move on. But I wanted to just ask one question because you've written in the Evening Standard as well on this point, and I think it's probably worth reflecting. As you know, you've you've come here, I think, given a very fair and rational arguments for Christianity. How hard is it to be a Christian in in the modern world? Not in Britain, where you only have to have people like me sort of asking difficult questions. But there are parts of the world which we should remember and reflect where being a Christian is effectively a death sentence or indeed a sentence to say you're not allowed to have a normal life. Yes, I mean, a a lot of the burden of my article is saying that there's a lot of ignorance and condescension towards Christianity in particular among intellectuals uh, but of course we live in a, a free society and I can um, I can cope with that and I can bite back from time to time I think it is a very unfortunate uh, blind spot on the high table of, of culture and it, it ought to be resisted more than it is but uh, let's face it people are not discriminated against still less persecuted in Western Europe for being Christian and shame on those who who say that they are. In the course of researching my book, Christianophobia, I interviewed people whose loved ones had been murdered in front of them. This was um, in India and and Egypt, uh, among other places, where India is, by the way, a a country where Christianity is highly subversive because it's um, resolutely against the caste system. Christianity is the most oppressed faith on earth in numerical terms. About 200 million Christians, that's to say a tenth of the global total, are harassed, discriminated against for their faith. We don't hear nearly enough about that. There's a, a hierarchy of victimhood in my view. And perhaps as we get to Christmas, that's not a terrible message to, to, to leave it on, that we can have a debate about, about Christianity and, and, and organised religion, which is very healthy, but there's parts of the world where you can be killed for being 
a question and it's probably a good time to remember that Ruby Short thank you very much indeed for uh, it's, a, it's a great piece it's a fascinating I, mean, I could talk about this for hours I'm fa- endlessly fascinated by, uh, by this so thank you very much for joining us from Christianity as so often indeed as we've been talking about to sex Toby Lichtig has interviewed the writer Emily Witt she's the author of Future Sex which is reviewed in this week's TLS in it she tells the tale of what it's like to be single in Brooklyn having sporadic sexual engagements with a range of acquaintances she also explores some of the gloomier aspects of modern sex the people who masturbate for money on Chatterbait a live sex cam sites which had passed me by and the polyamorists who maintain multiple partners emily's also written a review for the tls this week of diana spiotta's novel innocence and others which tells the story of two female filmmakers one obsessional and disciplined the other more balanced and commercial emily's concerned that sometimes the novel reads like infinite jest without the jokes and notice that the pleasure comes when it stops trying to be interesting and relaxes into everyday detail. Emily starts by telling Toby of her impressions of that novel. It's called um, Innocence and Others. It's about two filmmakers and childhood friends, Meadow and Carrie. Um, They're both from Los Angeles, but they moved to the East Coast and have very distinct careers. Meadow represents the severe auteur. She's a documentary filmmaker. She devotes her life to her practice, um, sacrifices everything to becoming a filmic genius. Carrie makes lighter feminist comedies or or comedies with female protagonists that are much more fun. And unlike Meadow, she gets married. She has a baby. She doesn't live this severe existence. So it's a little bit about what's lost when you devote everything to your work. And that sounds almost, it sounds slightly schematic when you describe it like that. Did, did, did it work, did you find? Did you did, it, did the kind of schema get in the way of the characters or did you feel like it hang, hung together as a novel? I, I think it hung together. It was an interesting book. It was not ordered chronologically for reasons I couldn't, I never really discerned why. It bounces around a lot. And, you know, the parts that I liked about it were about Spiota is a really evocative writer when it comes to tiny details and a lot of the book has a real nostalgia for 1980s technology so there's these very detailed precise descriptions of the sound of a dial tone or what it was like to listen to music on a Sony Discman or watching, having to thread film through a Steenbeck editing machine. And I, I really enjoyed all of that. The entire, the the friendship and the attempt to kind of deconstruct it in this non-chronological way and then put it back together, I don't know. I wasn't sure it was necessary. You talk about the, the friendship at the heart of the novel, and I, there, there's been quite a lot of fiction um, in recent years about intense female friendships. I'm obviously thinking of Elena Ferrante, but also... Uh, Zadie Smith's new novel, Swing Time, and the Sheila Hetty novel. I don't know if you've read it. Um, How should a person be? Yeah, uh, and is actually, N.W. Zadie Smith's other novel. Uh, N.W. Yeah, another female friend. Exactly. Yeah. And I just want—I mean—is it—is—is is that a coincidence? Are we living in a particular period that's that's right for this kind of thing? What, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it does seem to be because you know historically maybe it's still new that women define themselves by their careers as much or more as their families. Friendship becomes a way in which these conflicts are played out. So 
it's a way of comparing two ways of being in the world. And, and also, I think women are taught from a very young age, and this is especially true in Sheila Hetty's book, but I felt this a little bit in Spieta's novel. You, you read all these self-help magazines that are constantly telling you advice about how to live better, and so it becomes this process that you internalize, and so you're always looking at your friends and wondering if they, they've figured it out better than, than you have, and, and whether they, you know, you should be more like them, or so that kind of interplay that happens can happen between women is something that has a unexplored literary potential that feels contemporary, I think. Yeah, I think that's very interesting. And that's probably why there's so much rivalry in these novels for exactly those reasons mm-hmm. um, you describe. Uh, I was interested in your review when you talk about, and you've sort of touched upon it here, about the the use of uh, social life or the balancing rather of kind of the artistic life and the social life and there's a line that you wrote about uh, you described Spiotta's novel novel as a study in what happens to the person who becomes consumed by her art and I just um, I just wondered if we could then start talking about your book which is now out in the UK uh, Future Sex which um, uh, by a remarkable piece of uh, synchronicity is reviewed in the current issue as well oh. um, hooray you draw a lot on your personal experiences in this book I should just give a brief description it's a, it's a series of investigations into modern sex cultures and subcultures um, you explore internet dating uh, orgasmic meditation polyamory pornography among uh, various other things and I just wondered how in in your act of writing how you sort of separated Emily with the journalist and uh, and also uh, the person. How, how difficult was that for you? It was really difficult, and I was definitely projecting a little bit when I wrote the review of Dana Spieta's novel because, on the one hand, you have to be out in the world collecting experiences, interviewing people, witnessing things, and also having your own experiences, or you have nothing to write about, but at a certain point, you, you have to retreat and and work. And the hardest part for me was I was having relationships and dating um where the people i was seeing were had various expressed various degrees of comfort with being written about and i also wasn't totally comfortable writing about those relationships and in some sense i i think i failed a little bit i mean i i I was always too my last boyfriend who i was dating for about two years while i was working on the book i just I, he barely gets mentioned, and I just didn't want to put it in. And I wasn't hiding something, but it was just the relationship was not the most stable. And there was something about setting it down on paper that could have caused all these problems in my real life. So there was definitely a lot of tension there. Do you, do you now wish you had drawn on that more? I or? do now that we've broken up. I, I, I don't know what I was trying to protect, honestly. And, and it's a, it was a good lesson for me that... Sometimes you just have to be ruthless with your honesty about... Because the reader will always know when you're not putting it out there, I think. That's interesting. So do you... I mean, do you think the process of writing changed you? I mean, obviously you discovered stuff as you were going around doing and seeing all these things. But did, did the actual writing process have an effect on your attitudes yeah, it did because it forced me to articulate um, the mythologies about sex that I'd been raised with. And really, I had to write down my own prejudices. I had to describe very clearly who I thought of myself as as a person, you know, that I, I didn't think I was interested in porn, that I thought people who had open relationships were kind of naive or self-destructive, all these ideas that I had that once I had written them down and articulated them, I could see them as kind of 
not really rooted in my empirical experience and not sort of the thinking of a conservative person, which was a surprise to me. And so then there was another process of writing down what I observed and then what I gleaned and learned from it. And all of that, it, it I don't think my thoughts and opinions would be as clear had I not had to sit there and think about everything and write it down. <laughs> and so, so do you revisit it? I mean, have you revisited your, uh, your book much in recent months? And do you recognize the person who wrote it? I definitely recognize the person who wrote it and I've had to been I've had to talk about it a lot lately so I'm kind of rehashing it. You have, you know, you you have the the US publication and then several months later the UK publication. Is it difficult going back? Well, there hasn't really been much of a break in between because they put off the book tour till after the US election. So I actually just just did it and so it's been pretty straight through since October. The the question now cuz I started a new relationship right before the book came out and so now I'm articulating all these things I learned about the book and it, ideas about monogamy and all that and now I'm also navigating those in a new relationship and how we want our life to be in this relationship and how we want to define commitment and and so that's the part that's that's still the tension between the writing and the life is still um do you you ever have to send your partner back to the book rather than have a conversation to say or just you know read the third chapter if you want to get my handle on that (laughs) well when we first started dating i just didn't want him to read it um and he he hadn't he hadn't because it hadn't come out yet and then finally right before it came out i let him read it and I, I think it's almost nice to have this document that you can hand somebody that talks a lot about all your anxieties and neuroses. It, it gets a lot out of the way, maybe. <laughs> um, he he knows who I am and, and has an understanding of what I hope to continue to seek in the future. And I think it was nice to have this object I could just hand over. Yeah, very useful, I'm sure. You're obviously interested in, in interested in subcultures. Um, there's a line in your book where you say the history of the sexual vanguard in America was a long list of people who'd been ridiculed, imprisoned, or subjected to violence. Um, and I'm going to have the inevitable age of Donald Trump question, which is that do you see attitudes to sexuality changing much in America over the next few years? Or or is it merely, you know, that the misogyny in, in the US election was a reflection of what's already going on? And it's so fractured as a nation that, you know, that there, there isn't one, one narrative anyway. Yeah, it'll be interesting. I mean, the subculture, the reason I like pursuing subcultures and researching them is they really, they tend to be the places where hypocrisies in society get resolved. And, you know, obviously we're in this situation where we have this boastfully hip or sorry boastfully promiscuous president elect um who at the same time as he speaks of his own exploits and assaults and views on women is seems very happy to deny us our sexual freedom by taking away our health care our contraception defunding planned parenthood these things that for women are vital to their sexual freedom and so you know, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. I'm definitely there's going to be a big march on Washington on January 21st that is for women. And it, I think it'll be the first statement of the relationship that might be be going on between women and Trump. On the other hand, white women in the suburbs voted overwhelmingly for Trump, which I still will never um, really understand. But that happened 
Um, so yeah, I think there's right now just a wait and see attitude, but <laughs> yeah. also preparing a kind of preparation to assert our all of our rights to sexual freedom, especially given his own record. Talking of freedoms and also subcultures, I, I read somewhere that uh, you've moved on to a new subject and that you're currently interested in drugs as a topic, which um, which I think is fantastic. So I think it's an extremely underwritten about subject, possibly because it's quite hard to do well. But um, I just wondered if you could uh, give us any information about the kind of things you're thinking and writing about. Yeah, it started a little bit when I was working on the sex book because the two subcultures of the kind of avant-garde sex people and the, the drug psychonauts tended to overlap a little bit. But also it seemed related in the sense that here was another place where the language and the way society organizes its psychoactive substances into categories like medicine, recreational drugs, um, kind of daily rituals like caffeine or, or nicotine, were all very arbitrary distinctions. And it's what isn't, isn't allowed. Isn't yeah, it? and sort of what is dangerous and what is safe makes no sense, actually, when you look at what doctors can prescribe versus what is categorized as the most dangerous drugs. And, and, and so it just was another space where I just see a lot of confusion. And as, as we seemed to be moving towards a change in the legal paradigm, I don't know how that's going to go now. It also the, seemed like the intellectual model of how we approach risk and assess sort of sobriety and intoxication, all of that, there just seems room for a new a new model with a lot of people that can kind of loosely be categorized as the enlightened drug movement, that's what they call themselves. Um, there's a range of organizations across legal, party scenes, education, medicine that seem to be trying to articulate a new paradigm. And so that that's interesting to me. I'm not sure I'm going to do it yet because it is more difficult to write about something that is broadly illegal than <laughs> something that's available to every human. <laughs> well, I I hope you find a way, and I'm sure your readers do too, because it sounds it sounds interesting. Thank you very much for coming in. Thank Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Thank you. We spoke earlier about the tension in the relationship between religion and science. Well, here's another uneasy partnership, science and the arts. Terry Aptos reviewed Siri Husfet's new book called Laboriously, A Woman Looking at Men, Looking at Women. It's subtitled Essays on Art, Sex and the Mind and seeks, in the author's mind, to resist every suffocating categorical box, including between art and science, reason and emotion and within gendered language. While perhaps not entirely successful as a series of essays, Husfeld's book is provocative on the subject of how we categorise what we see and experience. Terry joins Thea and me now. Terry, let's start with this art versus science debate. Husfeld takes as her inspiration C.P. Snow's distinction of two cultures and argues that the gap between those two cultures is widening. She says this, and you quote it in the review, chances of a genuine conversation among people in different disciplines has diminished rather than increased in recent times. Do you, do you agree with that? I think the opportunity to uh, have that conversation has increased enormously in recent times. I think it was never really split. The problem with Snow's two cultures is that um, it's stark and it's simple and there's a smattering of truth. And when you get that lethal combination, you sometimes feel dazed. You just don't know um, how to move away from it. But if you do move away from it, uh, then you can see that storytelling, for example, is as closely bound to truth-seeking as scientific inquiry. And you can think of many of the great scientists of the past, you know, the seminal scientists of the past, who were themselves great writers and influenced by great writers. And, you know, you can think about Freud and Darwin. And, you know, Freud was a great storyteller. He wrote his case histories so well as stories that you get so much information, you can even say, no, no, wait a minute, Freud, I disagree with your interpretation because you've given us so much information, I can see this clearly and I have a different one. And with Darwin, I mean, he was a master craftsman at um, writing along the lines of the Victorian novel. He knew very, very clearly when to use metaphor and when to avoid using metaphor. And, you know, there are many ways that he could have introduced this idea of um, humans have descended from apes. If he'd really wanted to go softly, softly, he could have been abstract, he could have been general, but he doesn't do that at all. He says, there's your grandfather swinging in the trees with his pointy pointy ears and his tail and he's crouching on all fours i mean he's trying to get us out of our cultural comfort zone and see what's what this is someone who really understood about the power of narrative and vivid representation and um when you think of the you know the influence going the other way then you can think about guided by jillian beer's book darwin's plots 
how uh, George Eliot and uh, Thomas Hardy drew on Darwin's ideas. And it's impossible not to see in Middlemarch new questions from Darwin about what people are and how they're linked into this very, very, very long line of pre-human and human history. The problem with starting, with with taking C.P. Snow's uh, two cultures as a starting point, the the problem really is that that, uh, those articles and lectures were, they come from a time in which men were sort of, you know, various big figures had already been dueling about this. You know, it started with Thomas Huxley and Matthew Arnold and then C.P. Snow and, and F.R. Levis. And it was all, it was a series of sort of chest beating almost that, that sort of blew, blew things out of proportion and created a distinction that wasn't previously there. I mean, when you think of the society of, the Royal Society of Arts, founded in the mid-1700s. Right. And you think that that was, its full name is the Royal Society for the Encouragement of Arts, Manufactures and Commerce. So these disciplines always used to be complementary. So yeah. it's, it's, it's an artificial separation, which is, yeah. I worry in this book is being needlessly propagated. And I wonder whether it's actually quite limiting rather than liberating. Well... I I think it makes sense. I think it makes sense because Snow's essays themselves have been so influential. And, you know, one of the things that the series points out is that if you have categories, your mind can become more rigid than it need be. But that has happened. That has been a real influence um, from Snow. And um, so the, the, the recent wealth that you get in the crossover, some of which is more successful than others, that, that um, wealth of crossover is a direct contradiction to Snow. I mean, take Tom Stoppard's Arcadia, in which he presents and describes and analyzes the second law of thermodynamics. You know, this is because that was Snow's example. You know, lots of, uh, most people in the science have read King Lear, but um, few of them understand the second law of thermodynamics. And then F.R. Levis said, oh, what a stupid way of looking at things. And, um, and a whole lot else F.R. Levis said. How can you say... Um, it's enough to read King Lear. You know, you, you, you don't own it, you don't understand it, you don't engage with it just by reading it. But anyway, I think Tom Stoppard is sort of nudging, doing a nudge-nudge when he, he does this, but he does this beautifully. But he also adds to it because he's saying, you know, we can also think, uh, use, this, I, use these ideas to think about regret and think about nostalgia and uh, fear of a chaotic future, and also an impossible wish to go back and reorder the past. Uh, uh, one of the things that strikes me, actually, Terry, is that in, in both the, the notion of disciplines, actually contrary to what Siri seems, Hussford seems to be saying, is diminishing rather than in, increasing, because you have effectively, anytime anyone opens a non-fiction book, a book of popular science, you are confronted by novelization of, of anecdote, yeah. of scene setting, of 
um, even in the even in the most dry of science science books, you're gonna you you have the, this flicker of life which comes from a sort of novelizing approach, and then in the culture of novels now, you know the sort of hysterical realism of modern American fiction. You know, Jonathan Franzen uh, tells you how a fridge works and the science behind that. John Updike wrote a whole book about. Uh, Roger's version, uh, which contains all sorts of things about the the science of the computer or, or the science of the nuclear forces that holds the world together, and it feels like we're actually living in a world where m- sort of mongrel mingling of ideas happens everywhere. Well, yes, and then you get um, very high standards for the presentation of um, certain symptoms of neurological conditions. Um, you know, in Ian McEwan's Saturday, uh, but I also want to to point out that novelists not aren't don't necessarily look back to the science to to, to science discoveries they also uh, look forward to that they can be quicker so um you know proust and and some some scientists stroke literary critics look and say how is it that proust could understand that uh physical sensations uh could trigger memories i mean we didn't know that in the lab until the end of the Mm. 20th century or they might look at jm barry and say how could he in 1918 understand very very early cognitive development when psychologists didn't begin to understand it until about until the 1970s well i would say that the great writers the great artists have always been extremely careful keen observers and you know they're as empirical in their work as the scientists and so it isn't at all surprising that they find truths about the world which now may be thought of as scientific truths but they discover these uh, um, truths before the scientists because they're using, as it were, the same tools. They're using very careful, meticulous, creative observation. Shall we, shall we talk about language? It sounds like um, yeah, Siri Hesford's g- on firmer, firmer ground Gendered there. language, I mean, she's going to. Yeah. Because yeah. the thing, there's a great leverage, you'd say how genius is always considered to be penetrating rather than encompassing. And so do we as a culture associate the brain and and the functions of the brain with sort of male language. Do you buy that as an argument in this? Well, we do. And I think that, um, you know, gender is one of those things where even though there's been vast social improvement, there's so much bias embedded in the language that it's difficult to catch it all out, even with the best will in the world. And of course, Sometimes uh, when we think about the brain and how it works and how detailed it is, uh, we talk about it being um, a computer and we think about uh, certain aspects of the brain being hardware and certain aspects of the brain being software. You know, you can't change the hardware, but you can change the software. And that might be okay, except then suddenly there's this big idea that a man's brain is formed for systematizing, whereas a woman's brain is um, hardwired for empathizing. Now, however ridiculous in my view uh, that is, it has become extremely popular, it's become extremely widespread, and that then latches on 
to the metaphor of the brain as a computer, which makes that metaphor far more gendered than it need be. It's, fa- it's fascinating stuff, Terry. Thank you so much for um, uh, for joining us. It's, it's a very interesting review, and I'm not sure whether you'd agree that the book is actually a particularly important book, but it does raise some important questions. Is that a fair summary of it, do you think? It's so important not to lose the ground that we've achieved, that going back in time and not seeing how far we've come um, can be a real loss. And that's the only negative I have about the book. Terry, thank you very much indeed. Do you think there? What do you, that gendered language? You, do you buy that as an as an argument? I do. Well, it fascinates me actually. And talking about it just now reminded me of when I was in back in Italy just just recently. I don't know if I want to give you this material to make fun of me with, but I was I was Go wine on. tasting. <laughs> and um, duly noted. And. Um, <laughs> The the guy who was who was who was leading the tasting was was describing the wines and we had a selection of white wines and then he was he was comparing that to a, a neighbouring hill in Piemonte which makes is fa- famous for its red wines so he was discussing the white wine and he was using he was saying it's it's very delicate and floral it's it's a feminine feminine wine a very feminine wine and then and then he moved on to talk about Barolo from one of the neighbouring hills or Barbaresco and from a Nebbiolo grape, which is a, a red grape, and it's it's tannic, tobacco-y, a heavy, strong wine, Manly. masculine, a masculine wine. And I just thought, you know, if that's how ingrained, it's a, it's an automatic use of language, and you can imagine which of the two wines, uh, you know, the the white wines we were discussing, and versus the red wines, you can imagine which was the more expensive, of course, the most sought that's after. So interesting. I totally understand that, but is it to say that there are no inherent? differences between men and women that that can be brought out by metaphor because there are differences and and it seems to me that if you take it to its logical conclusion you should be people be frightened of any form of gender metaphor yeah usage, su- which is probably not right either no that's i suppose that's going too far but i suppose what you're what, what you're aiming for and you know it's what it's what cp snow and, and all of the people who are debating the distinction between the arts and and, and the sciences is to 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 find the best way of getting at a critical, of forming a critical mind. So when we're using language, it's just having an awareness and thinking about it. So I, you know, I may well say, um, you know, something, something sort of manly and and robust. You talked about about F.R. Levis and C.P. Snow chest beating. Yeah. Deliberately so. I mean, you know what you're saying, but there's a kind of, I thought you were going to say willy waving, actually. (laughs) Uh, when Would I? Like, yeah. Oh God. Uh, but but you were saying <laughs> that they were acting in a certain sort of butch macho way, and you yeah. therefore used them a metaphor consciously for yes. it. The danger. Are you saying the, the sort of the subliminal metaphor is probably the the riskier? Yeah, I think when thing. you when you're talking about someone acting in line with their gender is difficult. Different to sorry, different to talking about an ina- in a, an inanimate object yeah. and 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 imposing uh, gender generalizations on it because you know obviously there's no reason why a woman can't be as robust. And, no. and peppery as a, as a red wine or, or whatever. Although probably in those terms she would be described as feisty, which is one of my most hated words. Julie noted. <laughs> so wine tasting and feistiness are two things I certainly won't be mentioning in any later podcasts <laughs> in introductions. Have we agreed on that? Agreed. agreed. Well, I mean, I don't need to, no. but yes. <laughs> uh, that's almost all we have time for this week. Many thanks as ever uh, to Thea and to Terry App, to Rupert Short and to Toby Lichtig and Emma Witt. 
Please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back every week with highlights from the TLS and discussions on other cultural subjects. We have one more week this yep. year yep. before we do some highlights from King's Place. Can you remember what those highlights are, which will be I over the have, Christmas period? Uh, we have a special overrated, underrated, which picks up from, uh, it's a sort of a bit of a TLS tradition, a favourite, a Christmas game, if you will, yeah. um, in which we uh, invited a, a, a couple of, or th- I think three critics to uh, choose which writer they wanted to build up and which they wanted to knock down a peg or two. And Michael Caine, it's worth saying, the Doctor, our Shakespearean expert who comes on this podcast all the time, yeah. said Shakespeare was overrated. Yes. It's not right. <laughs> it's not right. But it's worth listening to. They'll be out over the Christmas period. This week's paper is now on sale with the pieces we've been discussing, plus John Plender on how the financial market is a bit like God, David Throsby on why Shakespeare is relevant to economic thinking, Kate Webb on the fictional treatment of the United States of whatever, and Sheena... Jochen. Jochen, well done, on how old people have sex. And that's that's not actually so much what the piece is about. Really? I mean. so it's a piece of what I took from it. <laughs> no, how, it's, about, it's about it a whole is, lot more. It's about ageing. It's about ageing and, and attitudes to ageing. Yes, and sex is a part of life. Is it not? Is, and a part is of the book not about sex? Well, it is sort of, but I mean, the, the piece also has another, another yeah, book that but it is, but the book... she works it into something that is far more complex uh, than about how old people have sex. Is there or is there not an anecdote about an elderly French lady? Because it ends on an excellent anecdote. Yeah, the, the anecdote is well worth, worth reading. Okay, thank you, Theo. You can find, <laughs> visit our website, the-tls.co.uk, to learn more about our print and digital subscriptions and come back daily for new original pieces from TLS writers, including Maria Busa on the cultural life of Romania, 20 questions with John Banville, who doesn't like Middlemarch, and basically all these people, all these famous authors, we get to do these questions. They always have a go at Victorian novels. Yeah, it's like they've wanted to say it all their lives. Yeah, we've had two hate Dickens <laughs> and now John Banville hates Middlemarch. And we'll be also commemorating the wonderful Christopher Hitchings, who would, I think, have had a thing to say about Rupert Short's lead piece this week and is indeed featured in it. Yes, yeah. Absolutely. I was I was rereading actually recently um, when uh, God is Great came out. Sorry, God is not great. Oof. Yeah. Uh, came out. <laughs> Our review of it. It's quite it's quite funny. Richard Dawkins uh, did it. Obviously, you know, preaching to the converted. Yeah, but okay. uh, it caused quite a quite a debate on the on the letters pages. I can imagine. Well, we're actually going to re- we're going to republish on the website some of Christopher Hitchings' best stuff. So check out that. And please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and review us on iTunes. That's it for us. Until next week, when we'll do more of the same, only a little bit different. From Thea and from me, goodbye. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.